rxmuscle.com brings you Quantum Physiques, building strength and power for your mind, your body, and your spirit. Alternative medicine, muscle growth, mood enhancement, motivation, putting your mind at ease, harnessing your maximum potential. Quantum Physiques, here's your host, Brian Cunningham. Is it possible that winners are actually losers? Is taking more time off the gym actually better for you than you think? Stay tuned for Quantum Physiques, where we answer these questions. Good evening, everybody. This is Brian Cunningham, your host here on Quantum Physiques, where we build strength and power for mind, body, and spirit. I want to uh, thank everybody out there again for the questions um, and for the feedback on the website, on the forums. A lot of really great, provocative questions. Even even the, the negative ones are great because you know what? That's how we learn and grow. And uh, I also want to just acknowledge people... You know, if we pick your question for the question of the week, I am going to send you a free bottle of my stress and anxiety product, Gabachol. So from now on, uh, people that send in questions and we pick them, I will definitely pick uh, you for a free bottle of my stress and anxiety product, Gabachol, which of course is found on rxstress.com. So the caller from two weeks ago that had the question about sex, uh, you can reach me on the forums, of course, or on Facebook under Quantum Physiques, and uh, I'll get you your free bottle out. I want to welcome Jeff to the show. Jeff, are you there? Hey, what's going on, Brian? How are you? Good, man. Good. Glad to have you back here again for another episode, Jeff, of Quantum Physiques. (laughs) Yeah, you know, and uh, thankfully, even though the voice is, uh, you you see, it's very deceiving. The voice doesn't sound 100%, but I am back 100%. It took a couple of weeks, uh, a few doses of vitamin C and some other, uh, you know, uh, supplements, and everything uh, turned out pretty good. So thank you and thank everyone for uh, their support. Yeah, great. Jeff, you know, the questions I was just uh, addressing with the audience here about it, is it possible that winners are actually losers? I want to get your feedback on this because I was perusing the forum, Jeff, and I saw somebody saying, "Does one of the threads was like, does this look like somebody that had a heart attack? And it was this shredded muscle guy, 39 years old. The guy looked f- phenomenal. And he's like, look how good I look. And I had a heart attack and I almost died. I had to go in the hospital, have a stent put in to unblock my arteries. And I was like, you know, and, and get this now, too. It's kind of coincidental to me, Jeff, because a study just came out this week showing that alpha males actually have more stress than they previously thought. That actually, um, you know, baboon study, which just so you know, primate studies are very much applicable to correlating with uh, with people. They're finding that that the dominant males actually had more stress hormones to their bodies, which of course means that sometimes the winners are actually losers. And I wanted to uh, just see what you think, Jeff. I guess in light of you know a few things here. Number one, the the Japanese female soccer team won the world. Cup and beat America, obviously. Um, the thing you hear about the alpha males and this guy with a heart attack, Jeff, and then also about what you and I know of as peacocking, because of course, in nature, the peacock is a really good example of, of an animal that has maximized sexual reproduction or sexual attractiveness at the expense of his own personal life, because peacocks are actually more vulnerable to predation. So what do you think, Jeff? Well, uh, the guy you're talking about is actually a good friend of mine. His name is Justin Miller. Oh, um, no kidding. Yeah, I, I think his name is Justinian on on the boards, and um, you know before he had posted that, um, you know I did hear um, through a couple of different channels that uh, you know he did have this heart attack, and um, you know the last I spoke to him, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing it was a few months back. Um, you know we we're all hanging out. I'm I'm pretty sure it was at a bodybuilding show, um, and you know he did compete in the past. Obviously, the guy has a fantastic physique, um, and he was uh, planning on making his comeback, I believe, next year. 
Um, you know, he took he took some time off. He's a gym owner. Um, he you know he does he does a lot of different things. Um, the guy's a great writer too. You know, just just an overall great guy. So I have uh, I have just nothing but great things to say about him. Um, when he posted the title, which is "Does this look like a guy who has you know who who basically had a heart attack?" Um, my initial thought was, it doesn't matter how you look. Uh, he he's he's not the first person who um, I know who is a bodybuilder who had a heart attack. Um, yeah. You know, within within a group of people that I consider my friends and acquaintances. Um, that's the first thing. Uh, the second thing. Um, I, I wouldn't be able to tell you what, what person has AIDS. I wouldn't be able to tell you what person has uh, cancer. I wouldn't be able to tell you what person suffered any kind of uh, mental illness just by their body type. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not quite sure what the correlation is there, you know, between, Hey, I have all these great muscles and, you know, I look like a guy who should be very healthy, but you know, uh, you know, how can I be so vulnerable to a heart attack? And obviously what you just brought up. Um, how the alpha males have more stress. You know, it's not just physical stress. It's the mental stress. It's emotional stress. I think that people sometimes um, look at life and they and they break it down to a point where they feel that everything has to be perfect, whether it's, you know, how they get up, how they eat, how they train. And when one of those puzzle pieces is removed from their life, they break down, they freak out, they start reaching out to people who they believe are going to save them. And if it doesn't happen... The stress level just jumps to a point where it's like I'm in complete despair and there's nothing I can do. And, uh, you know, I, I, I really don't know what like the case is with with uh, Justin. I, I feel really bad. But, you know, my thought is, uh, you know, just just very simply, um, I, I, I would never be able to picture what type of person would have a heart attack, would not have a heart attack. And uh, it's just unfortunate that it happened to Justin. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's funny that you know the guy. And, uh, you know, one thing he did admit was that he is a very high-stress individual. He went through a long time period of stress. And this study here, which is done by Princeton uh, Princeton University, uh, number one, just so you know, they said that, you know, alpha males have higher stress levels because of the fact that they have to maintain their ranking in society. And I can tell you, you know, Jeff, a lot of guys are in the gym working out um, because to some degree, they want to, in a sense, rise up the ranks, right? I mean, I can say for me personally, Jeff, without a doubt, that when I went from a skinny kid at 21 years old and got in the gym and then a year later put on like 15, 20 pounds, it changed my life. I mean, it definitely shifts your biochemistry and shifts how people perceive you. You said the same thing last week yourself, Jeff, you know? And oh, these course. researchers said that, just so you know, baboons here, I take a quote, baboons are not only genetically closely related to human beings, but like humans, they live in highly complex societies. So the relevance these scientists are saying the relevance does apply to human beings that there is a cost. In other words, winners are losers. Oftentimes, again, the peacock may win the game of reproducing, but and that's what happens, of course, but then they suffer the consequences. You know, you go back to Greek mythology again. Achilles, he was the warrior god that defeated unknown legions of enemies. And yet, of course, the whole story of him was that his strength became his weakness, right? He had the Achilles heel, and that's exactly what brought him down. So the irony, I think, Jeff, in this world of polarity is that your positives will always attract and bring with them negatives. You just cannot escape this reality absolutely absolutely and 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 you know um 
I think that sometimes, you know, also people people want to maintain their their dominance, um, you know, dis- despite their body and their financial situation and their emotional state dictating otherwise. Like, hey, listen, it's time to take a break. I know that when I'm lifting in the gym and and uh, you know, a weight, you know, this week maybe you know incredibly light to me and I feel like I can lift the whole freaking gym up and then I'll come back next week and I can't even warm up with like the warm up weight that I had previously and so now like I have a choice do I continue to dominate uh, in my in my little uh, mind this this, <laughs> yeah. this section of the gym and, and, and be King Kong again or do I respect my body and, and listen to myself and be like hey look you're not going to be king today today you're going to be a peasant and today you're going to go off to the side and you're going to you know give me some rest and you're going to respect the fact that Indeed, when you get to a peak, the valley is always deeper. <laughs> so the higher you go, the deeper you are going to fall. So I, I agree with that. Yeah, yeah. That, that's, and that's exactly what we cover here at Quantum Physiques is this, these ideas of, of polarization, how there's always a positive and a negative. And, uh, you know, again, when you're polarized and you see something as positive, you're just simply not seeing the negative. Or when you see something as negative, you're actually simply just not seeing the polarity because the positive is right there also. You're just not realizing it. And as Dr. Denise said in the first show here, is that when you can expand your awareness and realize that the positive brings the negative and vice versa, you neutralize the charges and you return to a state of balance or you reduce stress and anxiety and you let go of those chemicals that are going to cause, you know, maybe down the road manifest in a heart attack, basically, you know? Yeah. And like, you know, I think that a word that pretty much sums up what, you know, how you gain this, uh, this uh, kind of uh, wisdom is, is basically the word patience. Um, whenever you go to an older person who's, who's been on this planet for a lot more years than both you and I, which, which, which I guess for you would be 112 and for me it would be 150. <laughs> no, I'm just joking. Yeah. But, <laughs> no, but, um, you know, it's, 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 it's fascinating how they can, you know, after you tell them a story for about a good 20 minutes, they can sum up how you should respond to it in about three or four sentences. And, and you say to yourself, why didn't I think of that? And, and, and the reason why you didn't think of it is exactly because of what you just said. You were presenting so much of this negative crap that you didn't even realize, look, there is a way out. There is a better way, or this may not be the way that you're supposed to be going. And, you know, I think that uh, Denise is 100% right. Expanding your awareness, you know, uh, part of that, I, I believe, is, is, is being patient. Um, there's, there's no need to dominate 24-7. There's, there's no need to dominate all the time. There's no need to be the best all the time. You know, be be the best at what you're good at, and then accept that there's either always someone better, or you might meet you know your match one day. But it doesn't mean that you suck. Yeah. It just means that someone came along and did it a little better than you. Maybe you can learn to be even better than that person. It doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah. You know, you just got me thinking, Jeff. Great, that's a great point, actually. If you look at culture, at Western and Eastern culture, and of course, Eastern culture um, has, you know, Taoism and Buddhism, and Western culture has Christianity and Judaism, um, you know, these themes come up over and over again, actually. I'm just reminded of, like, for example, um, movies like the one with Jet Li or our hero. I forgot the name of the movie, actually, but one of them where, like, the hero. guy in the end, no, you're yeah, right. hero. Yeah. You know, um, and typically these martial art guys, uh, even I, I'm sure, you know, um, you know the one with the, the dragon dances, uh, dancing tiger, crouching tiger, hidden dragon, or whatever. Right. There's this idea uh, of the hero having to let go or having to lose in order to win something higher, in a sense, right? I and mean, there's this theme, actually, you know. And it's kind of funny because, and maybe I'm not making a point here. You can correct me if I'm wrong, Jeff. But if you look at Western culture, we typically look at things on a very one-dimensional plane, and we see this in our heroes, like the Incredible Hulk, is this big, monstrously muscular guy with no brains. Even in the earlier Arnold movies, actually, where like he was like um, 
Conan, again, big muscular guy, not too much in the, in the mental or spiritual level. Whereas a lot of the Eastern movies, even people like Bruce Lee, for example, you could say, um, were not as physically developed, but they had this mind-body connection. Again, right there, ability to fight intelligently, um, or even you may even want to say spiritually, as a movie in the movie Hero. Uh, you know, the Eastern cultures definitely seem to uh, emphasize this, and I think it's a pretty important distinction that you know is one of the reasons why I tend to gravitate more towards Eastern philosophy and integrate it into my Western living. Well, and, and you know, I, I, I used to be into martial arts uh, during my younger years. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, you, know, I, I, you know, the one thing that I was always taught is that, you know, the, the uh, colors, you know, the uh, colors of the belt, you know, uh, there's, there's like different rankings. But, you know, the standard colors is you start off and you're, and you're a white belt and then, you know, it changes colors and they get progressively darker. Okay, it goes yellow, green, and then, and then you know, in certain ones it goes to brown and then you get little black tips and then you're eventually black belt to different degrees. Well... You know, basically, and, and, and I'm, I'm sure that I'll be corrected if I'm, you know, even remotely wrong on this on our great forums with so many uh, great people um, who listen to the show. Uh, the belt was used to hold up the person's pants, and it happened to be a white belt. And over time, as they progressed and they used the same belt, the belt became progressively darker, which signified the changing not only of oh, you know, wow, okay, learning yeah. more skills, you know, not only learning skills, but that signified the fact that time was passing. And, you know, through time passing, things change the same way a tree starts small, ends up big, goes right back into the ground or it turns black. And so therefore the belt, it was getting dirtier, more progressive. You hold the belt as a symbol. This is what I started with. I'm going to I'm going to stay with it. And now it's blackened. This is can only come from two things, uh, time and patience. Yeah. That's it. You know, you cannot, you know, there's, there's like certain schools out there that like, you know, I see kids getting black belts in like a couple of years. Yeah. I'm sorry to tell you, but they don't have the wisdom of like a guy who's been training for 30. Yeah. And, you know, and, 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 you know, I, you know, again, now, now you also got me thinking about, you know, all these, all these other great movies. And like, I, that's, that's one of my favorite movies that you mentioned, um, Hero. Yeah. And, uh, I, it's, it's, you know, it, it's, it's a subtitled movie. It's, it's, it's like a movie you really have to pay attention to and like appreciate what's, what's like going on. And even though it's kind of shocking what, what like takes place at the end, you accept it because you realize, wait a minute. <laughs> you see, his goal was not what, what the goal in his life was supposed to be. Well, he, he realized it. it. Exactly. He, he thought it was. Exactly. I thought it was. That's why. That's why I, I I emphasize the point. And again, I I bring it back to the gym because I'm a I'm basically a gym rat. Uh, when I go to the gym now, and this wasn't like this like five years ago, I don't have to be the strongest guy there. I don't have to always lift the maximum weight. And people are gonna laugh, but it's like you're not gonna lose your muscle if you don't train beyond what you're normally used to. If you, you know, and like sometimes your body will grow better when you give it a break, but that can only come from realizing and trusting that what you've learned is not going to be lost. Yeah. It's not going to be lost. And so what if you don't dominate for one day? You'll, you'll, yeah. you'll go beyond what you, what you, where you thought your limits were. And when people think that they have to be on top all the time, I mean, Brian, isn't it true that you basically set an upper limit and you say, well, this is it. I finally got to the top. Now what? And these are the guys that are taken down the most easily. Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. And you know, the funny thing about that, too, as you know, Jeff, is that um, you find it's a rat race, too, because you accomplish your goal, like you win the trophy or you win the girl. And then like a week or a month later, you're like, 
what WTF? Now what? I still feel the same <laughs> sense of emptiness because I have this girl, but I actually want that girl, or this girl actually is crazy and not what I thought she was, right? Or you know, I got the trophy, but now I want to beat like Ronnie Coleman or something like that. So I got to go buy more gear or more risks, as an example. And there's this incessant rat rat race in a sense that never really gets you anywhere. So or you know, gets you somewhere, but it just again, it costs an awful lot. I think you're right. And, uh, you know, once once people grasp it, and, and, and there are plenty of people who have, and, and, and these are the people that I've learned from, uh, once once you accept that, you know, life 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 kind of goes on and, and, and you have to find what, what, what you love to do, accept everything that comes, whether it's a, you know, whether it's a reward or, or whether it's a lesson that like says, hey, you know, you went a little too far in this area and now, and now you're going to get a little bitch slap to like make sure that you're brought down to reality because uh, you're not the only one on this planet. So yeah. Yeah, that's a great point. And you know, I think your uh, your idea, your idea about that movie hero is is actually so on the money because you know I think all of us out there, and this is really for you, the people listening right now. I mean this actually is that you know you're on a, you're on a journey whether you like it or not. You're on an adventure in a sense, a story, an unfolding here whether you like it or not. And the whole idea here is that you know. The, the, the journey itself is a discovery into deeper levels or deeper layers of awareness or like as you saw in the movie you know the character evolved and I think all of us really not only do species evolve but I really think Jeff that within the span of a lifetime our consciousness or our level of awareness or understanding of life can, can evolve also you know whether we like it or not and oftentimes buddy through adversity not through having the easy life but actually through adversity you know listen uh, what do you guys think I really want to get your, your opinions and feedback so you know do me a favor and on the forum when we post this thread I would appreciate if you guys would contribute your thoughts and opinions because you know what Jeff and I both want to hear what you guys think and uh, you can also do the same thing on Facebook we have a Quantum Physiques uh, fan page on Facebook and give us your feedback and let us know what you think and uh, together we all can learn and grow from this so I want to take a quick break and when we come back we're going to get our guest on and talk about uh, taking time off the gym and how it can actually be the best thing you can you can imagine and also I want to get into some of the things that Jeff was, was just talking about too and ask our guest that so this is Brian Cunningham your host for Quantum Physiques stay tuned we'll be right back after this quick break. Quantum Physics, building strength and power for your mind, body, and spirit. Shaker Pro has designed the most innovative shaker in the fitness and bodybuilding world. Shaker Pro is the only shaker where the powder and liquid are stored separately and mixed together at the exact moment you desire. Mixing occurs in the closed Shaker Pro system. That means no more mess, just a perfect shake guaranteed. Preparation takes place anytime, anywhere, in the car, at work, or in the locker room. No need to transport separate ingredients with you. The Shaker Pro is an all-in-one solution for everyone with an active lifestyle. The patented Shaker Pro Chamber System guarantees that the mixing and blending of the ingredients will always produce a perfect shake every time. Simply twist, shake, and enjoy. Find out more about the Shaker Pro at 4sportlife.com. That's the number 4, sportlife.com. Hydrolyze Ultra, the leader in cellular hydration water. Hydrolyze Ultra water has been designed by shrinking and reshaping molecules to allow a faster and more sustained delivery into your cells. Our cellular water has gone through a magnetism and laser treatment process, along with adding electrolytes to our special ingredients. This allows all nutrients to be absorbed at a maximum cellular state. By using Hydrolyze Ultra, all nutrients, supplements, and carbohydrates you consume will be absorbed at a greater rate. Lactic acid gets flushed faster, and you'll feel fully hydrated. Get the advantage that top athletes have achieved. Try Hydrolyze Ultra today. Visit HydrolyzeUltra.com. 
That's HydrolyzeUltra.com. P28 High Protein Bread is the official bread of RX Muscle. Are you looking to incorporate more protein into your meals or just want to enjoy bread again? Then look no further. Try the 100% natural P28 High Protein Bread. P28 High Protein Bread is a formulated revolutionary breakthrough product. Packed with whey protein isolate, 14 grams of protein per slice, 12 grams of carbs, 8 essential amino acids, and made with 100% whole wheat. Fear bread no more. Build a better body with P28. Order today at HighProteinBread.com. P28 is also now available at Bodybuilding.com and many other retailers. Order now. HighProteinBread.com. P28 Bread. RX Muscle approved. RxMuscle.com. Now you have a place to turn when you want the truth on bodybuilding, diet, and exercise, up to the minute news, and more. Visit the RxMuscle.com forums featuring celebrity Q and A's with IFBB professional athletes, top amateurs, and the brightest minds in the industry. Listen to our weekly radio shows, including Heavy Muscle Radio, Muscle Girls Inc., After Hours, and more. Contest coverage, videos, even our own social networking site, RxMuscle Place. Visit RxMuscle.com. And welcome back to Quantum Physiques. I'm your host, Brian Cunningham, where we build strength and power for mind, body, and spirit. So the second question I had in the beginning of the show was, is taking more time off in the gym better than you think? And I want to get into what what we call strategic deconditioning, protein cycling, um, and also something called HST with my next guest. His name is Robert Thompson. And he is a fourth-year medical student. Uh, He's doing very well in medical school, kind of breezing through it, actually. Uh, He was also an avid researcher before this, having worked in the lab and done some really interesting things that due to the, I guess, legal, legal issues surrounding patent applications with this stuff, we can't really go into specifically, but I can let you know that they are relevant to athletes. Um, so th- this guy's got quite an impressive uh, list of, of credentials. Uh, Robert, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to have you on, actually, as well. Robert, you know, one thing, uh, the listener question of the week that we got from somebody, I think his name is Mike Pence, I believe, and I want to thank Mike for his contributions on the website because Mike was being a devil's advocate. And, uh, you know, uh, Robert, coming from a background of biochemistry and being in medical school and yet being open to, I guess, um, non-conventional modalities, Mike's question was, how do you integrate an understanding of what to do, say, with the disease process um, and balancing conventional and alternative medicine? Now, for example, uh, Robert, the, quest, the, the guest on last week was a doctor who had cancer. And what this doctor did was, of course, is that he went and had surgery because he had a five-inch tumor in his uh, thoracic cavity. So he was like, conventional medicine was great for that. However, for the long-term care and to mitigate the effects of chemotherapy, he began you know, a relatively radical protocol uh, which he elaborated on, which was basically doing uh, intravenous vitamin C with a specific type of vitamin C, which was, I think, semi-benzylated ascorbic acid. And then also he changed his diet radically. He cut out all sugar. He began to juice. And he had a very um, quick recovery and his doctors who were from Yale were very impressed with his ability to recover and bounce back basically you know and so Mike's question which is the question of the week and Mike just so you know you do get a bottle a free bottle of my stress and anxiety product Gabachol for your question is you know how do you integrate John Robert an understanding of um, both conventional and alternative therapies into how you live your life and so do you have an opinion on that Robert? 
Uh, actually, I do. First of all, it's, a, it's an excellent question, and I think it's something that a lot of people within you know, our culture struggle with because you're bombarded with ads for supplements all day long. You hear stuff in the news about vitamins and, and minerals and uh, how even things as simple as calcium relate to your health. And we also see you know, a very costly healthcare system, which I am now a part of, and you can't help but wonder, you know, what do I do? And I don't have a short answer for you, but if you can enter- entertain me for a minute, um, if you think about the process that we use within conventional medicine, I think it will shed some light on, on the question. And I think that light will help guide your uh, readers towards making better decisions for themselves. So let me start with this. With medicine, what we do is we look at all of the available evidence and we test that evidence as thoroughly as we can. And then once we believe that we have evidence that a therapy is valid, then we we call that, you know, the gold standard. And in medicine, these things change all the time because there's always new data being collected. But as a clinician, when you when you take action, when you when you help a patient with uh, deciding on a therapy, you take that culmination of knowledge that we have within the medical community that's been tested, that's been actually gone, th- that goes through a rigorous scientific process of actually being validated. And we use, we use that information to make clinical judgments. The supplement industry um, isn't necessarily subject to the same rigors. And that doesn't mean that supplements haven't undergone very good scientific research. But what it means is when you buy something from the store, you, you really don't have either that guidance from, from a physician, nor do you have necessarily the, uh, the evidence that says it's going to work. And unfortunately, a lot of physicians today aren't really up to speed on um, what natural supplements can do for health. And it's something that's greatly disappointing to me. With that said, though, you know, what, what I can tell you with medicine, when you go to your doctor and they prescribe you a chemotherapy for cancer, they can look at all the data of how the chemotherapy performed for other patients, and they, they have a pretty good idea of, for a particular demographic, what it's going to do. Um, when you do vitamin C infusion therapy, there hasn't been nearly as much uh, testing within that particular population against you know, standardized controls to really know what the outcome is going to be. So that doesn't mean that vitamin C doesn't do anything. What it really means is we just don't know what it does. Actually, I'm sorry I have to call you on that one. There has been multiple documented studies. Mike Pence, the question, the questioner, actually came back and even acknowledged uh, in subsequent posts that, yes, you know what, there are studies. Um, and just so you know, Robert, there was a study in New England Journal of Medicine on the uh, successful application of intravenous vitamin C for breast cancer, for one, as an example. So there is uh, an, sure. a, a growing number of studies coming out now on these non-profitable. And that's, you know, that's a big point, I think, is that there's no money in this so there's not as much incentive but there is science coming out supporting them though right so that's an excellent point and and we do again as i mentioned before you do see studies where they will be published and they'll be talking about what a certain uh, supplement does and how it benefits um, a medical condition but again you mentioned one very specific application a certain type of breast cancer and what, what people can latch on to uh, and that's not necessarily correct is say someone has a pancreatic cancer does the disease process that's being corrected for with the vitamin C apply to all cancers or just very specific types of cancers? And this is a really complicated question. So where I'm going with this though, Brian, is that the, the way that I make decisions for my own health is I look at all the available information that I have, whether it's within the medical community or not. And the information that I have within the medical community is not always the information that I wanna have, but it's probably the best understood because 
again, you know, if, if I were to see a study that said that vitamin C had been used in breast cancer and it was a randomized controlled trial, then I would trust that data. But if I was facing a medical question that was uh, something different and I was looking at how a supplement might relate to that and there was a lot of good anecdotal evidence, I might be encouraged to try it, but the, the evidence isn't going to be at the same level as evidence for the standard medical therapies that we typically see within clinical medicine. And that's not to say that clinical medicine is without its faults as well. There's, there's lots of areas where even uh, the practice of medicine will acknowledge that you know we don't have as much data as we'd like. And we again, it always comes down to taking as much information as you have, um, looking at it rigorously to see what information you're going to call as being valid and which information you're going to say, well, we're going to discard this and make a decision based off of it. So again, what I do is I look at what is the harm of taking a particular supplement for? For intravenous vitamin C, we may not know if it's um, good for all cancers, but we certainly have a lot of data that suggests that it's very safe. We know that vitamin C is virtually non-toxic. You can administer it intravenously in very high doses. You don't get any of the GI upset that you get when you take it orally. And so if somebody wanted to try that, and I was an oncologist, for example, and there was no clear contraindication for the medications that the patient was receiving, you could actually add that therapy to the existing chemotherapy without any problem. Sure. That's a great answer, Robert. And um, I have to take issue to some degree. I mean, you and I have slightly different opinions. And uh, I think one thing that a lot of clinicians like yourself or, or professionals in the industry, because you and I both know uh, a host of toxicologists that also are in the industry. I personally have worked in drug research. I work for a major drug company. And, uh, you know, one thing I think that clinicians fail to understand is the paradigm under which they practice medicine. In other words, there's almost like this de facto acceptance of this belief system that centers around a certain certain modalities, as an example. And so when you ask, and I'm not saying you, but your typical doctor about um, intravenous vitamin C, they have no idea what you're talking about, and they take offense to the fact that you would even question to have to have the you know the veracity of their protocols. Now, for example, I did give Mike an answer, Robert, just so you know. And one of the things I said to him was that he may want to go look up Ralph Moss, who is the cancer expert. And uh, Mike came back and says, "Well, Ralph Moss only has a PhD in, in English literature. How, how can you dare say that?" And I was like, "You know, Mike." That's kind of crazy because, you know, Jeff, the producer, who's on the radio show with us here now, Robert, uh, had told me about mTOR and leucine many years ago, actually, you know. And would I discount what Jeff says because his degree was in graphic arts? No. I was like, you know what? The source, the information sounds interesting and intriguing. Let me go and look it up myself. Turns out Jeff was right on what he said about mTOR and leucine um, with this guy, Ralph Moss also. Ralph Moss is an award-winning cancer researcher. The guy's got 35 years, written multiple books on cancer. He has done all types of statistical analysis on the data. He's uh, won awards for PBS documentaries on cancer. The guy's a cancer expert. He's testified before Congress on cancer to discount somebody simply because their degree is not in um, biochemistry is to really, in a sense, throw the baby out with, throw the baby out with the bathwater. So. I think um, you know that these things need to be taken into consideration um, for a new paradigm in medicine. Now, for cancer, for example, uh, Robert, you know, having worked in a good drug company and having talked to quote unquote PhD pharma pharmacologists working clinical trials, they told me here's how it works. Basically, it, Brian, it's risk reward ratio. If you're going to die from cancer, then the risk of toxic chemotherapy is relatively good for you, and that's why toxic chemotherapy is okay. 
And I'm like, oh, that makes sense. So because the outcome of cancer is death, then the outcome of chemotherapy, which is typically measured in a lot of studies, um, as far as I understand, in tumor remission rates, like five-year tumor remission rates or two-year tumor remission rates, um, you know, this is successful then. But through my knowledge, Robert, I can understand a different paradigm of medicine, one where I wanted to look at therapies. And again, this isn't just using supplements like vitamin C orally, which has very poor bioavailability, but using supplements pharmacologically, as you and I both know, that they can be active to, in a sense, complement the body's innate healing propensities. And I know you and I agree on this to some degree. So absolutely we do. Go ahead. Um, as you know, cancer is really near and dear to my heart because I've, I've lost some very close loved ones to cancer. And so um, yeah. you know, when, when, you're, when you're told by an oncologist that um, there's nothing that they can do for your loved one because the cancer has become resistant to all of the chemotherapies that they have available, you start grasping for straws. And that's exactly what I did. I was willing to consider anything, whether it was, you know, you know cow manure or a plant extract or whatever, you know, anything, anything that... Uh, could help my loved one, I'd be willing to consider. Um, it's, I think it's, having gone through medical training now, I can tell you that it, I have a different perspective now having gone through it than I did outside of it because outside of it, I was more of a skeptic. Um, outside of it, it's very easy to, to look at, you know, uh, the medical system as being ignorant. And there is a degree of ignorance within it in terms of, you know, you're, you're only going to look at the therapies that the market brings to you. And the market doesn't typically bring to you therapies that are not patentable, um, things that are, you know, things like vitamin C, you can't patent vitamin C, you know, the molecule has been known forever. So, you know, who's, who's going to champion that as a therapy? And the people that do that are the researchers at very large academic institutions who have um, you know, enough clout that they have freedom to investigate this kind of stuff. But unfortunately, the reason that we don't see more natural therapies is just because there's no money in it. Yeah. Exactly, which I think to a lot of people would find morally reprehensible. I mean, this is the thing, is that the paradigm, and I'm not making it wrong, we live in an economy that in a, in a sense is like, is like, you know, it has to grow, and it's almost cancerous in a sense. I just saw this movie called Wall Street Number 2 with uh, Michael Douglas. He gets out of jail from the first one, Gordon Gecko, and he was giving uh, an address to the graduating class, and he's like, basically, he's like, you're fucked, and the kids are laughing at him. He's like, no, no, you don't understand. You're living in a cancer. You're li- I mean, and so... I know it's it's a, it's a it's a metaphor, but it, to some degree, there is this dysfunction, Robert, in our paradigms where only what makes money is considered, and unfortunately, it does overlook a lot of times very efficacious, um, you know, protocols that that can help and that really aren't being brought to the forefront. Like for example, the NIH spends. $400 million a year educating people on a good diet. I think like Kellogg's spends. Somewhere to the effect, I'm sorry, it was $4 million. Kellogg's alone spends like $400 million selling their sugar-coated cereals, as an example. It just, it should, the, the point of this fact, the statistic, was to show the discrepancy for how much commercialism has promulgated us you know, with these types of foods and types of paradigms and belief systems when the things that are actually good for us, like, like eating broccoli, aren't really brought to the forefront and given uh, equal access as far as in, in the consumer knowledge base. Well, let me circle around to the point real quick that I was getting at, and that is you're absolutely right about these problems. We've discussed these problems in healthcare for a very long time. So we have a market system within this country that doesn't encourage bringing therapies uh, that don't make any money. We can acknowledge it as, as being a problem, but if you go to a clinician then, any clinician, you know, not just someone who thinks like me, and you say, well, I have a loved one with cancer. Um, I'm trying to make a decision between doing a natural therapy or doing chemotherapy. What should I do? 
and you you put the clinician in in a tough spot because they they first of all they know <clears throat> that for advanced cancers and i'll give you an example of ovarian cancer you know most ovarian cancer is found in stage three or four most people that are di- diagnosed with ovarian cancer will have um passed away before five years only 20 percent of people with ovarian cancer when diagnosed make it to the five-year point or beyond and that's with chemotherapy so the chemotherapies you know f- physicians know this they know that uh, the chemotherapy for ovarian cancer is not curative and it is heart-wrenching you know i i see i've seen oncologists tear up when talking about this stuff during lectures because it is so frustrating you know they're, they're trying to chisel away at this problem you know uh, two months at a time you know can we add two months to, to patient life with that said what the oncologist knows is they, they know that they've got a 20 percent chance of getting you to five years with the chemotherapy but they don't know what they're going to be able to do with you know an alternative or natural medicine approach and you can look at chemotherapy studies and there's been tons and tons and tons of randomized controlled trials that will tell you either how good or how bad a therapy is but for the natural side of things as I was saying before, there's there's a lot more uncertainty. So when you've got that uncertainty as a clinician, how are you gonna, how are you supposed to counsel your patient? And the way that you do that is you just you you educate them and say, well, with this therapy, with with the medical gold standard, I know that it's not great because your prognosis of making it five years is twenty percent. But with the alternative, if you were to choose one or the other and not do a combination of, of both, I can't tell you what your um, what your success rate is going to be because there hasn't been a large enough study done um, that would bear statistical significance for me to give you any information with. It's yeah. A re- it's a really, really tough problem. And, no, it is. And so people, people kind of take this whole discussion and they start attacking physicians saying, well, you're not open-minded about supplements. And I will, I will grant you that there is an element of truth to that because I haven't met many clinicians to my frustration that just don't really want to hear about vitamins or, or whatever. You find that less in academics, though. In academics, you will find that people are very open-minded, and they will let the evidence speak for itself. And so, you know, I guess the the short of it is, you know, don't necessarily attack your physician if they're not open-minded to your natural therapy. And I think you'll find that actually a lot of physicians are willing to work with their patients on, you know, guiding them through that system and also adding, you know, adding a natural therapy in addition to a more conventional therapy. Sure, sure. I think what it comes down to, and I want to switch gears into more bodybuilding related topics, Robert, but uh, really what it comes down to is, is caveat emptor. It's really buyer beware. And what I mean here is that, you know, it's your life, listener, and honestly, you've got to become the expert. The more responsibility you take for fixing your car or fixing your body, the better off you're going to be. The more you trust a mechanic or you trust your doctor, the, the less control or the less control of outcomes you have, in a sense. And I think that you know, reading, becoming an expert, I mean, really, your health is synonymous with your life. This is really more important than fixing a car. You can walk away from a car and, and make back the money, but you really can't walk away from a, from a, you know, a, a, a just an overwhelming cancer, as an example. And so the point is, is that don't expect your doctor to know what these, you know, cutting edge clinics in, in Tijuana or in San Diego are doing. And there are some really cutting edge clinics uh, in San Diego and in Tijuana that are doing really good stuff down there. And they're all run by MD, PhDs, as an example. Your sure. regular doctor's not going to know. And I think also your point about academia, these guys do know because you know what? They're more immersed in the peer review literature. They're, you know, your typical clinician out there is just trying to pay his mortgage and put his kids through college and he's shuffling papers dealing with a thousand patients a day. It's a different mindset than the, the, than the person in academia who is regularly in Medline and regularly doing peer review type of work, I think, uh, Robert. It's not just a different mentality. 
there's a different stream of income as well. And in yes, next research, those research projects necessarily have to come from NIH funding. There's been yeah. some research projects that I've wanted to do through academia, and I was not able to get um, government dollars for those. And so, you know, as soon as, soon as you fund something with, with private dollars, of course, um, Academ academics get really suspicious. They say, well, you know, that, that device company funded that study, so of course their results are going to look good. I'm not going to... So they will weigh this stuff. You know, they will weigh the most sure. heavily studies that are randomized, placebo-controlled, blinded, and funded from, you know, a government source versus a private source. Yes. Which to something... And listen, confirmation or what's it called? Observational bias. Uh, you know, it's a very real issue in epidemiology. I'm an epidemiologist and I can tell you that without a doubt, I've seen studies, I've seen textbook studies of doctors that were influenced by who was sponsoring their research. And it's, well, this happens even, over and over and over again. Even for you and me, you know, the, the whole process I think that, that drove me into medicine was, you know, when I was working out as a younger kid and, you know, you want to get big, you want to be strong. And you go to the supplement store and you spend, you know, boatloads of money on supplements and you kind of wonder to yourself, how much is this really doing for me? And as you get bigger and stronger, how much was it was a supplement? How much was a diet? How much was a training? Yeah. You don't yeah. really know. And there's and there's virtually no way with supplements to prove it. And so after you spend, you know, hundreds of dollars and you spend hundreds of dollars on stuff that you know didn't work because you, you didn't get any bigger, um, you start to get a little bit skeptical about, you know, how easy it is for someone to come out to the market and make claims, and there's and there's no FDA. And I'm not saying that we should change this at all. Um, I actually really like the way that our supplement industry in this country works, and I really would like to preserve those freedoms for our citizens. And for example, for exactly the reasons that we were talking about before. With that said, though, there should be an element of buyer beware that know that um, it's very easy for people to make convincing claims that actually don't carry any weight at all, and um, People, people who have gone through medical training, people who are academics in particular, PhDs who have studied, you know, epidemiology and, you know, people that are qualified. And, you know, I, I don't always weigh credentials that heavily, but understand that, you know, those people have been trained to be appropriately skeptical and to really look at the evidence being presented. And, you know, a, a lay person doesn't necessarily have that, uh, have that training. And, you know, when I was younger, Brian, I looked at studies and I thought that I was, you know, using a very intelligent and scrupulous eye looking over data and you know of course when you when you learn about how to actually properly construct a study you start to realize how how easy it is to get whether intentionally or accidentally sham results just based on how you structure your study and so what sure. was convincing to me back when i was in my early 20s is much less so today yeah, yeah, no, that's a good point. Uh, I want to wrap up just by having one concluding comment here, uh, Robert. We, Jeff and I just had a conversation on, um, on the Achilles heel, on how winners can be losers and how sometimes your, your greatest strength can be your greatest weakness also. And I got to say that sometimes, not always, it is a great starting point to ask what someone's education and training is because a formal training is a point of credence. It does make someone more believable. But without a doubt, sometimes it can be an Achilles heel because it can also um, close the person off, right? In a sense, because their ego is attached now to their sense of identity in their degree. So for example, um, Robert, I've had a lot of doctors say, what do you mean, you know, grass-fed beef is heavy, uh, is healthier than regular beef? And meanwhile, this is, this is years ago now, before the studies came out showing, wow, it has more HMB, it has more omega-3 fatty acids. All of a sudden, the past five years... 
there's an explosion of data. Yeah, exactly. So a lot of times, you know, your greatest strength can be your weakness also. And so I would just cur- cur- encourage everybody to realize, listen, a doctor deserves to be respected and his opinion does carry a lot of weight without a doubt. But you also have to, in a sense, again, take responsibility for yourself and learn about these other facets because the complexity of information out there in, the, in, this, inf- in this universe and society is literally overwhelming for any one person. But unfortunately, you are the one who is ultimately in control of your health and the outcome of your life. And that's really where I think we should leave it off. Uh, absolutely. And, you know, if I could just add, a, you know, a couple of trailing comments, Brian, I would, I would suggest that, you know, people, the, the relationship that you have with your physician is very important. And it's important to actually have a physician that really works with you. Um, I would never want to go to a physician that's just going to tell me what to do. Um, I would like to go to a physician that will value my knowledge and value my questions and also be open to learning about things that they may not be familiar with and keep an open mind about them. Yes. And if you can find an individual with medical training that has those mix of characteristics, I think you'll have a great relationship with them. And I think that they will do a much better job of guiding you through some of these questions that we've been talking about. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So once again, I want to thank Mike Pence for that great question, Being Devil's Advocate. And uh, Mike, if you want your free bottle of my stress and anxiety product, Gabitrol, you can go to our website at www.rxstress.com and contact us and I'll give you a free bottle of Gabitrol. So Robert, I want to shift gears here now because you're an avid bodybuilder and, uh, you know, again... We just had a pros versus bros uh, shoot off this past uh, week, I think. Jeff uh, was actually, I think, there. And, I mean, these guys are incredibly strong, Robert. They were deadlifting like seven, 700 pounds. Unbelievable the guys were winning. But, you know, you're actually, to me, you're a pretty strong guy. I mean, you're benching like 325 for like, what, 50 reps or something ridiculous? No, no, um, no. I mean, I, you're very I, strong. I've been trying to lower the weight these days just because, you know, the older you get, the more uh, injuries you can accrue. Sometimes I'm trying to do more like NFL combine type training. Yeah, yeah. And I want to get into your training, actually, because, again, being in medical school, you're very busy. Uh, you've been able to maintain an incredible physique. So, you know, I like the ideas of what you're doing. And a couple of things I want to hit upon, number one, was one, one of my uh, questions in the very beginning was that taking more time off the gym can actually be better. Now, you and I both know this as what's called strategic deconditioning. And uh, it seems like it's a pretty good idea to do because actually taking a step back can lead you to take two steps forward. Is that not correct? Well, you're, you're talking about uh, concepts, concepts in bodybuilding that are very interesting to me. So let's, let's just take a step back for a second. And uh, the, the whole concept of strategic deconditioning is really something that was popularized by Brian Haycock in his um, HST program. His uh, hypertrophy uh, specific training program. And uh, if you look at, you know, I, I think I think um, Brian Haycock's a very very smart guy, and he's um, he's got some great great ideas about bodybuilding. And I've actually I've actually used um, his methods for a lot of my training. But if you actually look at the principles that he's talking about, he will he will list um, articles on his website and in his art in his uh, writings that will uh, reflect you know some scientific data or some you know something that was done in the petri dish. Um, but really, if you look at his concepts around strategic deconditioning and the way that he progressively overloads the muscle, those are general concepts that we've you know, anecdotally learned through you know, years and years and years of bodybuilding to be true. I don't know that we actually have uh, the evidence from the Petri dish that explains why that theory seems to work. But the, the, uh, the general concepts in terms of what he's talking about with regards to physiology tend to hold true across a lot of things, even outside of bodybuilding. So I have a lot of respect for his ideas, and they do seem to work. 
Yeah, the whole thing about it that really intrigued me was that, uh, you know, the mechanical factors that trigger, uh, I guess, hypertrophy uh, in a sense, you know, again, it's that whole yin-yang thing, the polarity in a sense, that it becomes increasingly more difficult to, uh, to impart that type of a mechanical stress on the, on, on the muscle. And by taking one step back and allowing the muscle to become, in a sense, more, I guess, softer and to kind of soften up to some degree, right? It helps to upregulate receptors again and to, in a sense, trigger a new phase of growth. Both. And so I think it's, it's a great thing. And you've really been living proof of that, actually. Absolutely. And, you know, his, really what his theory is, is that, you know, if you look at exercise or force load on a muscle fiber, it's almost like a dose of medicine, right? That you're going you're gonna to give a dose and you're going to get an effect. And when you start a medication, you, you never go to the full dose right away because you need to balance, you know, how much of this is going to help me, how much of this is going to hurt me. So if you look at the way that his training accelerates, you start off with the lowest dose possible exercise to cause you know an incremental improvement, and then the next time you go back, you're kind of making the assumption that that previous dose needs to be escalated to uh, continue getting that effect, and you escalate and you escalate and you escalate until at which point you really can't escalate anymore. And um, and there's a lot of theories as to why this is. You know, receptor downregulation is probably a very likely component of it, but again, it hasn't been proven out. And once you stop, once you strategically decondition, then you really what you're allowing the system to do is to reset. So imagine taking you know, an antihypertensive medication for a long time and suppose that your body becomes resistant to that medication, right? Well, if you stop taking it and you switch to a different medication, over a long period of time, it's possible that you could go back to that previous medication and it might start working for you again just because you become desensitized to it again. Exactly. Except seems to hold true for training. Yeah. I'll, be very, I'll be very excited when the day comes when we can actually know um, physiologically and biomechanically exactly what's happening between the interaction of applying force on a muscle, getting, getting the specific hormonal responses that go down to that full cascade. You know, we understand a lot of the hormones that are being signaled within, you know, with, within muscle growth and also from uh, mechanical stress. But uh, those pathways are incredibly complex and we're constantly... I'm finding additional characterizations that we we never even knew existed. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I just want to encourage the listener, if you want to hear more information on HST, hypertrophy for specific training, uh, I'm actually going to paste uh, um, some information on this protocol in this thread, this week's thread, on the form.rxmuscle.com website. So if you want to get more information on that, you can go there and, and read up on it. It's a great way of training, especially for those who are pressed for time. Uh, Robert, I want to segue into something I thought was very interesting, the idea of protein cycling. Now, I've done a lot of fasts over over, over the course of my lifetime, anywhere from two to seven day fasts. And uh, I recently learned that the idea of taking off of a of high protein uh, you know, diet basically promotes the body's ability to catabolize um, you know, tumors or to, to catabolize, in a sense, uh, tissue that does not really belong there. And a lot of people, I've been kind of searching this on the forums, have said they've had really positive results doing, I'm not sure what the technical term is for protein cycling, but having one or two days of low protein intake to allow the body to, in a sense, catabolize these tissues that need to be removed. Now, you being a medical doctor or in medical school, maybe you could shed some light on that because I do find this, this area very fascinating. Can you help me with this? Well, there, there's many mechanisms of, of homeostasis within the body that uh, could explain a phenomenon like that. I'm not familiar with any specific research, so I can't comment specifically on you know any anything that would be peer-reviewed or anything that was even done in the lab that would shed light on this. I can tell you that there was a um, 
protein cycling diet that was popularized by, um, I believe it was Leo Costa Jr. Or there was also a, a De Pascali, right? And the Dr. Anabol- Mary De Pasquale, he's very well known actually, that's right. And, uh, and his, his diet essentially was a very low carbohydrate diet, high in fat and high in protein. And then on uh, day seven, you would essentially eat zero protein, zero fat, and you would essentially just take sugar the entire day. And, and what he was trying to do was manipulate these homeostatic mechanisms, not just for protein, but also for the hormonal response. When you fasted from sugar for six days, and then on the seventh day you binge on sugar, you're going to have an, you know, a hyper-reactive in- insulin response, but you also have uh, elevated insulin sensitivity in the muscles. So pretty much everything that you eat uh, that's you know glucose based is going to get shoved right in the muscle. You know, it's like shift and balance from the, the the muscles are just craving sugar. Um, the adipocytes really aren't. And uh, with regards to the protein, what he was saying was was by uh, eliminating protein on those days, you, you would resensitize your body to wanting to store protein again. His theory never really fully made sense to me. And again, you know, it's bodybuilders have used this, and you know, people will quote anecdotal evidence, but I don't know that this has ever actually been studied. And if you if you are aware of studies, I would definitely want to take a look at them. You know, I'm not aware of any studies. Uh, a lot of what I go from is um, from a nutritionist who's 84 years old, and the guy is still running marathons. He's, I mean, he's actually out there in Staten Island, which is out by uh, Dave and Jeff out there in Long Island. And uh, Dr. Fred Bishi, he's got a PhD in nutrition. And his big thing, too, is going on low protein because he says, and again, I can't back this up, that it helps to, I guess, helps the cells to release carbonic acid. And I got, I got to say, when I was on day seven of my fast, and I was having a lot of tingling sensations um, in, in my body, in my periphery especially, actually, he said it was uh, that that's a typical thing he's encountered with his clients because the body's releasing large quantities of carbonic acid. And, you know, all I can say is that um, I've seen some forum posts, some threads on this stuff, too, where guys swear by the fact that they had, like, growths, like skin growths, like um, maybe uh, some types of benign tumor-like growths or maybe even some warts, uh, and the body was able to catabolize. Catabolize, just so you know, can I... The catabolic process is very important. Dana Hauser, MD, was on the show before, is very big on using the yin-yang, the polarities of both anabolic and catabolic cycles to really you know, embed better gains in, in the long term. And so I'm a big believer in, John, Robert, of this uh, using, I guess, protein cycling to, you know, to have some short-term catabolous, uh, catabolic cycles in the body. Uh, yeah, and that's actually been pretty well studied. We we know that in order to build muscle, there's a certain catabolic component that's required. And um, if, you, if you do a list search on PubMed, you can find a number of studies that will actually characterize that. Um, okay. With, with regards to the protein cycling, though, you know, if, if I was an 84-year-old marathon runner, I don't think I would be concerned about completely starving myself of protein for a day or two. But as a young, you know, fairly avid, healthy, you know, guy with a more bodybuilding mentality and wanting to, to maintain lean muscle mass, my concern would be, without having some good evidence, is... When your body goes catabolic, which necessarily has to do when you when you start from protein, where is it going to take the protein from? Oh, muscle tissue too, of course. I understand. Yeah, right. And and so you know, I, I, I don't know that uh, I, I don't know that you would be able to convince me at this point, anyways, with the evidence that I've seen to uh, to start starving myself of protein. And even uh, even De Pasquale with his anabolic diet, you know, I actually tried the anabolic diet for a while, and my body never responded to it very well. And I know for some guys it works really well, but for me, and I, I think there's this you know law of individual differences as well. I actually need a very high carbohydrate diet. I need that insulin st- stimulus, and uh, you know, I don't get fat eating carbs. I really don't get fat eating anything. 
um, except for fat. If I eat fat, then I can put on a little fat. Interesting. So once again, thank you, Robert, for being a guest on the show. This is your host, Brian Cunningham, on Quantum Physiques here on rxmuscle.com. I look forward to seeing you all next week. Quantum Physiques with Brian Cunningham is dedicated to harnessing the power of the holy grail of health, fitness, lifestyle, and success. And you'll hear Quantum Physiques every Wednesday evening only on rxmuscle.com.